Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Conservatives seek support for today's motion asking for documents related to the coronavirus pandemic. We've indicated that we're prepared to support uh, the request for health-related documents uh, with some changes that we're looking for. So with those changes that we're hoping to make with the motion, we are prepared to support it. What lessons can the federal government take from the election in British Columbia? We've seen, you know, on a smaller scale, but you start to see a pattern. The Premier of New Brunswick had an election during a pandemic, was rewarded, you know, with a majority from, from a minority. Uh, we've now seen it in British Columbia. And the Prime Minister avoids expressing an opinion on the U.S. election. I think Canadians expect for us to uh, prepare for a, a range of contingencies, and we are. But mostly we are focused on ensuring that regardless of the outcome, regardless of uh, who is president uh, uh, in the coming years, we will be able to continue to stand up for Canadian interests. It's Monday, October 26th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Peter Van Dusen, CPAC's executive producer and the host of Primetime Politics. Peter, thank you for being with us. Hi, Mark. Good to talk to you again. So last week was a very interesting week, obviously. There was a lot of brinksmanship and and politics going on. Uh, This week we are starting with a motion today that is is kind of a follow-up from last week. It's about accountability with regard to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, let's talk about what's happening and how this motion is likely to play out. Well, the motion is going to pass. It has a little support of the opposition parties, uh, and we'll see what the government uh, does with the motion. Uh, could the government end up supporting it? Uh, possibly. We'll see. It, uh, it compels the uh, House of Commons Health Committee to carry out a massive study and... and um, obtain massive thousands and thousands of documents basically to take a closer look at exactly how Canada has responded to the pandemic, how the federal government has responded to the pandemic. And, uh, you know, the Conservatives who sponsor the motion say it's, you know, they're really not looking to lay blame if they find any mistakes. They're really trying to make sure we're, we're on the right track and that we're ready for uh, a better response to the next pandemic. So, you know, it's a little different than the motion last week, which was a confidence test. Uh, this one's not. The government's already said it will not make it a vote of confidence. In other words, if it were to fail, or if it were to pass, which this one's going to, the government would not look at that as a as a complete, um, you know, attack on its record and its, uh, you know, whether or not the House has confidence. So it's not going to be that. So if the motion passes, we don't have an election, simply put. And this one is a, a clear focus on sort of nuts and bolts of the pandemic response and, and uh, not so much like the one last week was, which was also an accountability motion, but it was really all about digging into the We Charity, and and it was uh, the Liberals considered a, a search to try and and find embarrassing stuff about the government. And, uh, we may still get that investigation at committees, but it, uh, it, it you know the government said if it had passed last week, it would have triggered uh, an election. This this one will not. And, you know, in many ways, Mark, this is what committees that have the Commons are supposed to do. So if there can be some forward progress on this, if everybody brings to the table uh, the search for answers and a, a a really genuine desire to see how well Canada's done, sure, uh, highlight the mistakes, find out what we can do better. If it uh, devolves into a, a, a real partisan um 
you know, investigation where it clearly becomes driven by politics. Uh, I think, you know, uh, we'll see how Canadians view that. But for the moment, everybody says they just want to get answers and make sure the response has been the kind of response the country needs and might need again. Yeah, of course. Uh, now, as a as a follow-on to that, the health minister, uh, Patty Haidu, was saying on the weekend that China must be held to account if uh, officials there were not honest about the coronavirus. It originated, of course, in China. Uh, what does that mean exactly, and and uh, to what extent could China be held account by the held to account by the international community? Well, it raises all kinds of, uh, I guess, you know, possibilities. It is China, um, so you've asked the right question, right? I mean, how does anybody hold China to account? And largely, the way people hold China to account is by, uh, and, and often uh, at, at peril to themselves, is to you know slap economic sanctions. Um, other measures to try and get China to do what the world wants it to do with often very limited success. So, you know, what does that mean is the good, is the right question you know, to hold China to account. How, uh, to what extent, with what force? Um, I mean, the minister was saying that, you know, you know, in, in back in, in the spring, she was defending China's response, you know, saying there's been no indication to the World Health Organization that China was fudging numbers or not telling the truth. Uh, people are looking at China a lot more critically now. And the question becomes, as I say, what does that mean when you say you're going to hold China to account? You, you know, you, first you've got to have pretty clear evidence that China wasn't telling the truth or, or, or not all of the truth. And then you have to decide what it means to try and get at the truth and what are the consequences of trying to push China to provide that. So uh, stay tuned. It's a story that has, you know, lots of moving parts and we'll want to uh, follow up and, and watch where it goes in the weeks ahead to see whether there's a concerted effort by the entire world if uh, the evidence is there that, you know, China didn't uh, didn't tell the truth to figure, okay, uh, how do we get China to tell the truth and, and, and why is that important? Well, it's important because, you know, most experts agree that this will not be uh, the last uh, pandemic uh, that right. we have to face, and maybe the next one will come sooner rather than later. And there's lots of, uh, you know, lots of uh, suggestion that uh, when we get another one, it, it, it may in fact have originated mm. in China too. So there's lots of reasons to uh, wonder about the actions of China, lots of reasons to uh, ask questions about China's actions, but also <laughs> lots of reasons to wonder how gingerly to approach China given uh, the massive economy and the role they play in the rest of the world. Yeah. All right. Let's turn to the British Columbia election. Uh, on the weekend, as people will know, uh, the NDP government, which had been in a minority parliament previously, was elected to a majority. Uh, this is the second time this has happened recently in Canadian politics. And uh, uh, I wonder, especially given everything we went through last week in federal politics with uh, with uh, the, the threat of a, an election happening this fall, which was averted, uh, what do you think that means uh, in terms of, of uh, uh, how the Liberals will look on this? Will that, will that embolden them? Will it, will it make them think, okay, if, if they can go from a minority to a majority, maybe we can too at some point in the near future? Yeah, the big question is, are, you know, is there any penalty to pay for having an election during a pandemic, uh, even though that question is raised constantly? We heard it a lot last week in the confidence vote. Who can, who possibly would, would make an election happen in a pandemic? 
and lots of good arguments, I suppose, on on that side about why not to have it when you're trying to manage the national response to a pandemic. But look, we've we've seen you know on a smaller scale, but you start to see a pattern. Uh, the Premier of New Brunswick uh, had an election during a pandemic, was rewarded, you know, with a majority from from a minority. Uh, we've now seen it in British Columbia. Uh, there's an election tonight in Saskatchewan, and all the indications are that uh, the Premier of Saskatchewan, uh, Scott Moe, will uh, that the uh, his party will win again. Um, so the question becomes: Is anybody being penalized for having an election during a pandemic? Uh, but it gets a little trickier than that, um, as we saw with with John Horgan. Uh, there was lots of criticism for him uh, going early. Uh, to an election when there's a fixed election date, he did have a minority government, but there was also, you know, he went a year earlier than he was he was uh, had said he would go. The question is how, you know, what what happens on the federal stage? We don't have, uh, you know, there's a fixed election uh, date, but this this is a minority parliament; it could fall at any time. So the thing to watch is if the Liberals decide they do want an election during the pandemic because. Uh, it'll be all about the response and how it continued delivering help for Canadians as opposed to answering questions about what's not working, what went wrong, and and how to deal with a, you know, with a, a $300-plus billion deficit. Uh, I think it, it sort of ramps up the pressure a bit on the side of those or the argument for those who've been saying, look, we should, we should try and go now. This is the politically opportune time to go because we can control the timing of that. We can decide that we want to go now because it suits our purposes versus having the opposition at some point down the road uh, determine the timing. So there's lots of opportunities between now and the next few months for the government to be able to do that. So what I'm watching for is in these conversations uh, about election timing and about uh, you know um, questions and answers about about the pandemic and the response, uh, how stridently the government maintains that argument that we do not want an election now. We do mm. not want an election now. If that if that uh, starts to mellow a little bit and we hear a little uh, less enthusiasm for no election, uh, it probably means we're getting uh, closer to one. And the other thing that I'd quickly say, Mark, as we uh, get close to the end of our time here, is that, uh, you know, what we saw in the test of confidence uh on the we issue, and we we're seeing with this uh, this motion on the health committee today, is there there, there aren't going to be an endless number of opportunities when the government can be uh, put in a position uh, put in a position where its its uh, abilities are actually being challenged, and these standoffs with opposition parties before we get an election. Yeah, good point. Uh, just quickly, as we wrap up, Peter, there is another election, perhaps one that Canadians are paying even more attention to than the provincial elections that are happening in really? this country. Really? <laughs> uh, and of course, which, that which is... Which one is that, Mark? Yeah, the one that is a week from tomorrow in the United States. And of course, uh, the Prime Minister is is refusing when he's asked to comment on that election. Naturally, that's the that's the inevitable answer for any world leader uh, to speak about another country's internal political decisions. Um but the government and others have to be watching this just as closely as Canadians are and monitoring the potential different outcomes from all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, you you can't really be a, a prime minister in this country that's that's weighing in on, hey, how would you, you know, who would you like to win the U.S. election? There's no mileage and no political gain for a prime minister to take a position before the results are out. Um, just because of, you know, you, you, you can't put your country in a position to, and especially in this case, in a, your country in a position to have taken sides and then having lost. 
Uh, Donald Trump's the guy who takes names and numbers, Mark. And if you're on the wrong side of him uh, ahead of the election, uh, he happens to win it. Um, uh, you know that puts Canada in a, in a, in a probably in a tricky position, at least in the in the early going. Uh, for um, you know a guy who you know has said lots of negative things about Canada already, and may have lots more to say if uh, if the prime minister were to take a position. It's the right diplomatic uh, stand to take. Um, you know, is to is to remain uh, certainly publicly neutral uh, for any result and then say what you have to say about the results when they're in. Yeah. All right. We could be there eight days from now, We or, or maybe not. Uh, it might take longer than that to know what the final results are from the U.S. election, but we'll cross that bridge at another time. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, good to talk to you again, Mark. Take care. That's CPAC's Peter Van Dusen. And that reminded me how important every vote is. It reminded me that there are hundreds of thousands of people who are waiting for their votes to count. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In McLean's, Marie Danielle Smith considers what the NDP victory in B.C. means for the rest of the country. Smith writes, The B.C. outcome offers more proof to the notion that voters would rather not shake the boat too much during a pandemic. Don't doubt that the Liberals in Ottawa have noticed the trend. It does go some way to explaining why Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was willing to stick his neck out and risk an election last week over the parameters of a committee he didn't like. In the Toronto Star, Penny Colinette comes to the defense of Jagmeet Singh. Colinette writes, You would think the man responsible for halting the putative snap election this past week would be a hero. Instead, Jagmeet Singh is accused by pundits and some partisans of being a lapdog for the Liberals of folding instead of fighting, and of not negotiating for his party in return for his support of the government. I, for one, say thank you to Singh, who prevented an election at a crucial time when the country's health had to supersede politics. In the Globe and Mail, Evelyn Forget and Sheila Regeer argue people with disabilities deserve a basic income. They write, A basic income would guarantee a higher monthly income without mountains of monthly paperwork or the need to apply for multiple complicated special allowances subject to the discretion of caseworkers. Persons with disabilities are among the poorest in Canada, and it makes neither moral nor economic sense to make disability-related benefits difficult to access or designed to trap them into endless cycles of poverty. It's time to treat people with disabilities with respect instead of paternalism and to address the inadequacies of the current system. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. There was a lot of attention paid to last week's confidence vote on an opposition motion. The next confidence vote will most likely be on something that affects Canadians directly, the government's long-awaited legislation for revamped COVID emergency relief programs. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on that. Mark, the government has promised new relief to Canadian small and medium-sized business owners, so expect the legislation to be tabled as early as this week. The legislation will do two things. It will follow up on the announcement two weeks ago of a new rent subsidy and also an enhanced business loans program. The new rent subsidy will not depend on commercial landlords signing on, but will flow directly to small and medium-sized business owners who are tenants. Business owners have been screaming for that change ever since the first day the first program was announced almost half a year ago. That original reliance on commercial landlords to sign on was a major reason why the first program had such small take-up, less than one-third of what the government had hoped. 
The new rent subsidy will also be more flexible. And the main thrust of the relief for small businesses uh, in terms of loans will be a top-up to the Canadian Emergency Business Account, or CBA. The government announced it will now make the total of loans, uh, it will top it up to $60,000 from previously from $40,000 and there is a $20,000 forgivable portion of those loans if they're repaid before December of next year. The legislation is expected to be tabled by Finance Minister Christian Freeland and of course it will be a confidence vote because it's a money bill. And don't expect the kind of brinksmanship around this bill as we saw last week on those opposition motions because the measures in this bill are largely supported by all of the parties in the House of Commons who understand how urgent the aid is to Canadian businesses. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will speak with the Premier of British Columbia, John Horgan, and with the President of South Korea. He will chair the Cabinet meeting and then deliver remarks and participate in a virtual fireside chat during the annual general meeting of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Later, the Prime Minister will hold a discussion with the Canadian Ambassador to the U.S. and Canadian Consuls General in the United States. And Transport Minister Marc Garneau will make an announcement about economic recovery funding for Montreal's Mirabel Airport. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Monday, October 26th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.